imagine with me the scene as recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus is praying. He is interceding. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And he also prays for all future believers. His church. You and me. As he prays for himself, he says the following. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent. Jesus Christ. So Jesus prays that his present and future disciples will not lose sight of what is and should always be the center of our focus. Him, Jesus. He knows. He knew back then, he knows now that distractions may cause his disciples then it may cause us today to lose our focus on him and for him to only exist in the periphery of our lives. That many, back then and today, may be fooled by the idea that proximity to Jesus is the same as being a disciple. He knows that there will always be attention on this side of eternity. Being in the world, but not being of this world. So he prays. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Friends, this season has proven to be, for many of us, a distraction. But Jesus prayed and continues to pray that we, his followers, are con continuously instructed and sanctified, that is, set apart for him and set apart from the world by his word, his truth. So he continued praying. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctified them myself. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Hours before, Jesus prayed for himself, for his disciples, and for us. He had celebrated Passover with his disciples. At the meal in the upper room, 
Jesus explained himself and gave the disciples the interpretation and the explanation of the meaning of his death. But he also told them that afterward, when it was all over, when the distractions and sorrow and confusion kicked in and the temptation to be distracted settled in, for them to remember his death through this meal. The Passover, what we know in our terms, the Last Supper. So Luke records Jesus' explanation, and from it, we will learn three things today. Number one, Jesus' death is the center of history. Let us read. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as he has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to, began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. So why? Why is it that Jesus intentionally chooses the Passover as the moment in which to reveal the meaning of his death? Well, what's the Passover? The Passover was a meal that was eaten the night before the Israelites were liberated by God from slavery in Egypt. And God said to them, listen, I want you to eat this meal repeatedly every year as a perpetual memorial. I never want you to forget this night. I never want you to forget how I saved you by my grace and by my power. And so this had been happening for centuries. The Jewish people had been eating the Passover meal every, um, every year. And in Luke, Jesus gets up, he takes a cup, he blesses it, and gives thanks. And then he begins to speak. And that fits exactly with what had been happening for centuries. The presider, typically the head of the family, will get up and take the first cup of the wine, of wine and he will give thanks. And then a question will be asked, typically by the youngest in the family. And the question will be, why? Why is this night different from any other night? And the presider will say something like this, our forefathers, our ancestors were slaves, but God looked upon their suffering. And then he will say, you see this bread? This bread is the bread of our, our affliction, 
the bread of our ancestors' affliction that they ate in the wilderness. And then they will explain the meaning of the liberation, the suffering, and so on. So Jesus Christ picks up the cup. He opens his mouth the way it's been, in a way that wasn't done ever. And as soon as he, he speaks, he says things that the disciples thought, wow, this is, this is different. This is not the way it's supposed to happen. Why? First thing is that Jesus says, this cup and this bread, this meal is not pointing to the past. It's actually pointing to the future. He says, I'm not going to eat this, this bread and I'm not going to drink this, this wine again but until the kingdom is established. But then he says, what is really most difficult for them to understand. He says, this is the bread of my affliction. To which his disciples must have been like, what do you say? Come again. It is the bread of our ancestors' affliction, our affliction. But Jesus said, no, 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 this is the bread of my affliction. What he's saying is, this is my body. And this bread has been broken for you to be fed. My body is going to have to be broken. My life is going to be poured out for your sake. As we said, Jesus chooses the Passover as the context to explain the meaning of his death. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, years ago, they ate a meal before God redeemed them from political and economic slavery in Egypt. But tonight, this night, we eat a meal before God will redeem us and the world from sin and death. This is the night, Jesus is saying. That's different from all other nights. But what should have really brought this point home for the disciples was the fact that Jesus was talking about the wine and he took the cup, he took the bread. But where is the main course? The main course was the lamb. But there was no lamb, no mention of the lamb. There was no lamb at the table. Why? There was no lamb on the table. Why? Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sitting at the table with them. And he's saying, I am the lamb. So the cross... is the center point of history. The second principle that we learn from Jesus using the Passover to talk about his death is that, that Jesus' death is the foundation for a radically new community. You see, in the middle of, of, of this chapter, chapter 22 in Luke, there's this, this fight, there's this, you know, jostling, uh, they're arguing 
Who is the greatest? And Jesus says to them, listen, the king of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But it shall not be so with you. What is he saying? Well, Luke is the only one who records this at the Last Supper. And what he's trying to bring home to us is the following. He wants us to see that the cross does not change us as individuals only. It doesn't just give us forgiveness, though wonderful, or happiness, or peace, which is great in an individual way. If you understand the meaning of the cross, if the cross comes into your life, it puts you into a community, a radically new and different community. And he, and he points out three things that we should learn about this new community. Number one is that the cross creates a community that is an intimate family. The first thing that we're told is that, that when we understand the cross, we are put into a new intimate family. And when you read the text, it's so easy because you're so familiar with the text to miss out on what it's actually saying. But look at it. When is it that, uh, or where is it that you were supposed to celebrate Passover? Who was with you at Passover? Family. And yet Jesus is sitting down with all his disciples and they all had their families celebrating Passover by themselves. And they were not with them. But Jesus is celebrating Passover with his new family. An intimate gathering. Let me put it another way. What makes the family bond so strong is not really blood. Or at least it's not just blood. Because what makes people feel like Family is a common experience. Living in the same rooms, same homes, same geography, so on. It is the common experience that creates the bond that you feel. Isn't it true that sometimes you feel more like family with others than with those that you grew up with? Jesus is sitting here. And he brings them together and he says that as strong as a bond can be normally as you grew up with your family, the experience of the cross was going to be greater. That when you and I grasp the understanding of what the cross means, it gives you a commonality with other people who have experienced the, who, who experience the cross as well, that you may not have with those that you are related by blood. He's saying you are brought, you are adopted into a new family. And you can be family even if you're from a different race, different income, different politics, different education, because that does not matter. It's the cross that matters. You now have the basis for a deeper unity with anyone who has experienced the power of the cross.
The second thing that we learn about this new community is that it is a radical society. So Luke continues to talk about the narrative, and he says, then a dispute arose, um, also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, Lord, Lord, Lord it over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not like that among you. On the contrary, however, or whoever is greatest, greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is the greater, or who is greater? The one at the table, or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among, among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So you see, there's an argument. But Jesus says something that is very countercultural. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority who lord over them are called benefactors. But it shall not be so with you. Now, that word benefactors, I had to go and look it up. And what it basically means is that benefactors were the people higher up in social economic or in the social economic order who will give help to people lower down. But it was only help given to later be paid off. In other words, if you had a benefactor, someone who did something for you, who helped you, you owe them for the rest of your life. So Jesus is saying, that's how the world works. I help people, I relate to people, but only the ones that will pay off. I hang out with people, I only really hang out with people when there is a payoff for me. I want to be with the most powerful people, the people with status, the beautiful people, the smart people, as much as possible. Why? Because that helps me. And Jesus says, when the cross comes into your life, that absolutely normal, instinctive way of sorting through people and choosing some relationships and rejecting others should be gone. Gone. He says, it shall not be so. Other people help and relate to those with a payoff. But Jesus is saying, I want you to love people who may disagree with you and me. I don't want you to love people for your sake. I want you to love and relate to people for their sake, for love's sake, whether there's payoff or not. So Jesus, Jesus' death produces this new community. There is an intimate family. There is a radical uh, society. But the third thing is there is a reverse, uh, reverse meritocracy or meritocracy. What does that mean? Well, a meritocracy is one where people who rule are selected 
on the basis of their ability. Look at what Luke says. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. What is happening here? Jesus turns to the ultimate leader of his future church, to this new community, the one that he's building. And he turns to that person, out of the whole group, to Peter. And he says, Simon, Simon, you know why I'm going to use you to strengthen your brother? You know why you're going to be the one who's going to be called out the leader? Because your record is impeccable. Nope. Jesus doesn't say that. Because your performance is flawless. Nope. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I know exactly what is going to happen. The cowardice, the self-absorption, the weakness, the lack of integrity at the foundation of your life will be laid bare for everyone to see, even yourself. And yet, Jesus says, though Satan has called upon your number, so to speak, I will not let you go. I will hold on to you. And when you repent, when you turn, come back and strengthen your brother. What is Jesus saying? He says, in the world, who are the leaders? The most successful people. The, the ones with impeccable resumes. The beautiful, the strong, the rich. But in my community, Jesus says, who are the leaders? Probably the ones who messed up the most but throw themselves at the grace of God. In other words, failure thrown into a vat of repentance and reliance on the grace of God will turn every failure into wisdom, compassion, and love. The last thing that we learn is that Jesus' death needs to be appropriated personally. You see, uh, someone asked me who, what was my love language. And I had to create one. There's five love languages. Mine is food. You invite me, I'll be there faithfully. You can talk about a meal and say, oh my goodness, that meal looks so good. You can praise the meal. You can say many things about the meal, but that will not bring any nutritional value to you. But just looking at it, 
but just speaking of it. Even cooking it, but not eating it, right? You need to make it personal. You need to appropriate the meal for it to give you the strength and the sustenance that you need. A lot of people believe in what Jesus has done. They believe in the cross in a general way, but they have not appropriated what it means to their lives. And what does it mean? It is not on your merit that you are forgiven and accepted, but it's on the merit of Jesus on the cross. So when you appropriate to the meal, it means that every time you come to celebrate, you're saying once again, it's not because of me, but it's because of him. It's not because of what I have done, but it's because of what has been done for me. And that's why Jesus says, do it over and over and over again. And every time you do it, take it personal, make it personal, appropriate salvation, forgiveness once again. So today we're going to partake together. And we will do something different. I know that many may be at home today and you see this is something we do in community. It was meant, designed to be done in community. The new family. I know that this has been a very difficult season for many people. Many of you have lost a lot. Family, friends. Celebration of a, of a great event or even going to a funeral. Seeing a grandchild being born. Or celebrating with family that, that marriage that you, that wedding that you dreamed of. And you only had a few people there. It has brought a lot of distractions. But today, let us remember what has been done for us. Let us remember once more the price paid at the cross for you and me. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. And let us be strengthened once again. Would you please stand? Take your elements. Take them out. Take your bread in one hand and your cup in the other. For those who are online, please, you may be by yourself. I don't want you to feel that you're not part of this community. You're part of this family. We love you. We're going to make you part of this. So please look at me. And for those who are online but with someone else, I will ask you to do the same as what we are going to ask everyone. Please turn to the person uh, beside you and tell that person this bread represents his body.
given for you. This bread represents his body given for you. Tell the other person, look at her or him in the eye and just say, this is his body given for you. This is meaningful. You're reminding each other, this is his body. It was given for you. Let us eat together. I had to take a smaller chunk because this is real bread. Now turn again to that person and say, this is his blood shed for you. Online, do the same. Now for those of you who are alone online, please type it on the chat so that others who may, who may be watching should feel the same and hear the same. This is his body given for you. This is his blood shed for you. Let us drink together. Let's take an extra moment, a minute or two, to reflect on the meaning of what we remember today. Remember whose you are. Forget about the sins that had been forgiven. Let us not dwell in the past. Let us move in confidence in the freedom that Jesus earned at the cross for you and for me.